it's Ellen. This week, we are once again joined by a really special guest. This time, it is our friend Katie Stoneman, who is an animal care assistant and zookeeper in the UK. This conversation was so much fun. Katie is a true delight. She is both knowledgeable and super funny, so we think you're really going to love this. Just as a quick heads up, this episode was recorded remotely, so at times, the audio might sound a little bit unclear if you are using speakers. So personally, I recommend enjoying this episode with headphones if possible. Anyway, enjoy. All right, we're here with Katie Stoneman. Say hi, Katie. Hi. All right. This is really exciting because you are our second guest. We have you on here today to talk about animals. Katie, can you introduce yourself a little bit? Yep. Hello, I'm Katie. I'm from England. Um, I have experience in like animal keeping. Um, I'm a pet owner. Um, I worked in as an ACA, so that's like an animal care assistant, I think equivalent to your SPSA, so animal shelters, and as an animal educator. So I've um, been a volunteer keeper as a primate and small mammals keeper. Um, I'm currently a part-time carnival keeper. I'm also part-time animal care assistant, so that's dogs, cats, rabbits, anything you can think of that comes in that's either been neglected, needs rehabilitating, needs a new home, we kind of medicate them, make sure they're all good and send them off on their way into a new loving home. Um, I own kind of various pets at home from like axolotls, royal pythons, which I think you guys call ball pythons. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, they're like, you guys say ball python. I don't know why it's so different, but, <laughs> but I always have to say, because I said to someone once and they were like, oh, wow, that sounds like a really cool python. I was like, no, it's just the same as you. It's just the same. Oh, wow. I, I had never heard heard that uh, that they had another name like that. Yeah, I'd never thought about that. Huh. <laughs> I think Al sounds cooler, a royal Titan. She's the queen moon. We have a queen moon. Yeah, it does. I, agree. I definitely would campaign to have the yeah. ball python <laughs> changed to the royal <laughs> python. I'm I'm all about solidarity and I like consistency and also exactly. royal sounds cooler. So um, I also have a leopard gecko, gerbils, um, hamsters, various fish, invertebrates like cockroach, praying mantis, um, and my dad's dog. <laughs> awesome. You have quite the quite the personal zoo. Yeah, it's like a little collection, and then I go and work in a big collection. <laughs> <laughs> well, Katie, so you said that you work in wildlife education and wildlife care. So what, what got you into that sort of thing? Well, originally, my first ever position was an assistant reptile handler. And what we did was we had a collection of reptiles that people had um, abandoned and kind of where I'm from, um, animal rescues don't take reptiles and things so they had to call someone special which was us and we kind of rehabbed them and the ones that we were comfortable with we took to schools and small groups of people in like events and just kind of things like that and we do educational talks um, show people how to handle them kind of advocate for these aren't good pets but if you're going to get one this is how you look after them um it kind of like kind of things like that and um we had like a Burmese python from last week a little shout out her name was Mango. She was huge. She weighed 11 <laughs> stone, which wow. off my top of my head, I can't. Would that be like 170 pounds, I think? 
Goodness. Wow. Hold on. I have my phone right next to me. I can I can do the math really quick. <laughs> you said it was 11. <laughs> well, that's an estimate. So if that's wrong, like, <laughs> don't be blaming me. You were so close. It was 154 pounds, according to Google. Oh, wicked. Well, <laughs> that was her. And we also had like little, you know, like royal pythons, kind of geckos and things like that. And we just did like an educational role there. And then, then I went off and did my animal keeping at zoos and things like that. And then this summer I got a, a role at a safari park. And it was, so I taught lessons. So there were kind of lessons on conservation, how we can help help the planet, um, endangered species, and then I also provided the chance for the kids to go on um, more practical lessons. So we'd go into the woods, we'd identify what invertebrate species we can find, what plant species we can find, um, and then I'd also take them to show them how to prepare the food for the giraffes and feed them, um, and how to clean out the elephant enclosure, which they always hated because it was just full of poo. And they would <laughs> at me um, and things like that, create enrichment for the lemurs, kind of hands-on, practical, small keeper experiences, I suppose. Um, and then that would kind of last a week. And then I'd hope that they would go home and they've had these fantastic experiences with these animals. On top of that, they've had these educational lessons, hoping that they take something from that and they, they go home and they implement that into their life. So that's kind of the aim. If you know you're successful, if they actively implement the 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 things into their daily life um, and they they've got a new enriched caring kind of onlook about animals and the world that's so true that sounds really fun that sounds really fulfilling and exciting it was it was really good what was interesting was a lot of the um, kids were from France and they came to help them learn English as well but I speak zero French so oh dear <laughs> If you said that they were learning English, I'm sure they at least knew enough to understand what you were saying. They did. Some of them were so amazing. They basically were already like bilingual and spoke perfect English. It was really impressive. I don't know what your education system is like, but I was never really like forced or had to take any lessons to learn another language. So I think it's, you know, really, I always think when someone speaks another language, I'm like, wow, that's so amazing. I, I can't do it. <laughs> In America, you know, it's, the country is so big that you can go for days and days and days and still be in somewhere where English is the first language, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you can't, it's not like in Europe where, you know, you, you go a couple of hours and now you're in a country where they speak a different language. Right. Yeah. So it's not considered as high a priority, I think here to, to learn other languages. And so a lot of schools around here will require you to learn a second language. Yeah. Um, but it's easy to get around it. Well, and, and plus, it, it's not really learn the language. It's it's take two years of school classes on that language. So. Oh, my gosh. And the yeah, so you take it for two years in in high school usually is where you is the only time when you are actually required to take foreign language. You take mm -hmm. two years of it. And I mean, like two years of a public high school curriculum in a foreign language is like, you're not going to be able to no. really do anything with it. It's like, <laughs> it's like half of a Duolingo course. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so no, uh, like learning foreign languages is not really a, something that I think is <laughs> pushed in American schools, though I think it should be. Um, Definitely. It's pretty much the same here. You kind of take it like one class a week in either German, French, or Spanish, and you kind of get well, what you give, really. Some people went for extra classes, and they can speak amazingly, but I would 
could never get it so I hated the class you know (laughs) (laughs) I'm imagining that like a language barrier is probably something that you have to overcome a lot like in in educating people about wildlife though right like yeah having to meet people where the language is yeah and like little things that you don't think of like they didn't I was trying to think of how to describe a rodent to them because we were talking about the capybara and I was they were like um what is it though and I was like oh it's a rodent and they were like what is that and I was like I couldn't think of it it's like an animal like like a like like a hamster or a rat and they're like oh vermin I'm like no 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 like <laughs> it's teeth grow but they don't necessarily know that because they've come to learn about that so I was just like I don't know how to explain what a rodent is yeah, I, I I can see what you mean. It would there would be a language barrier there if if it's hard to explain, especially when you get into like complicated like taxonomical t- terminology, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like I don't even know how to describe this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes when I'm doing my notes on animals that I am way out of my depth on, usually with invertebrates, and I start to get into like their anatomy and these complicated biological mm-hmm. systems that I don't have education in, sometimes I'll be like. Mm, I don't actually need to talk about this. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Like sometimes it just gets too complicated. We had, I took, um, I did a bachelor of science degree with honors in applied zoology. I don't know what that is converted into like America. No, we so we have zoology like bachelor programs and, and so uh, I have seen applied zoology bachelor programs and I've also seen like animal sciences yes. which I think is a little bit more of an ag- agricultural approach to zoology. It's more for like I think cattle and livestock and stuff like that. Yeah, that's meant for more kind of thing. Yeah. So that's what like in one of the classes in there was um terrestrial invertebrate zoology and so I kind of know all these weird anatomical facts about loads of different inverts and we'd be talking to these French kids and um, I'd be saying all this stuff and someone would be like they don't know what you're saying they have no idea how to stop (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I would have been in the same boat as the French kids but not because of the language barrier (laughs) (laughs) I would have been like I also don't understand what you're talking about but I speak English (laughs) yeah that stuff can be really complicated but today we're not talking about terrestrial invertebrates we're talking about something a little more familiar today We are, and something I think a lot more people will enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) Now, now I enjoy my I enjoy me some terrestrial invertebrates, but we're going for a cloud pleaser. So, Katie, what you got for us today? So today I want to talk about the Rothschilds giraffe. Um, We'll probably cover general giraffe stuff, but for the sake of like conservation status and slight morphological features, we're going to mainly focus on the Rothschild because that's what I've experienced in. Are there different species of giraffe or are they all the same species? (laughs) This is something that I'm very into is like giraffe taxonomy. Um, Yes. Because my favorite class was um, systematics, cladistics and taxonomy and I focused on giraffes. So lots of different ways you can classify a species. It's kind of like the taxonomic argument and that's kind of where you get like a gray area with animals like the giraffe or especially the orca that's a huge one that's kind of crazy to do some people use like the biological species concept which refers to a species as a group of organisms that can breed and produce fertile offspring uh, according to mallet 2010 and so therefore if you were to 
breed um, an Angolan giraffe with a um, reticulated giraffe, as long as they provide fertile offspring, you could class them as one species. So they would no longer be the Angolan or the reticulated, they would be just giraffe of one species. So these, this is where you get into things like subspecies, right? Yeah, it kind of like, it's where do you define a subspecies and an actual species? That's pretty interesting because they're, they're all over Africa, right? So yeah. they're, they live in very different areas. And, and from what I've seen, it's, it's easy to like, you can look at them and tell that they're different giraffes, right? <laughs> well, that's the thing with the morphological species concept, it would go all by pattern size. And I actually have an image in front of me that shows all the different patterns and all the different colors. And they are so different. But when you see them in real life, are they similar enough to be classed as one species? Because according to the morphological species concept, as long as they look the same, they are the same species. Um, so it depends on how on how specific you want to be with that. Um, or then you can use the ecological species concept. So you can either say they're one species because they're all from Africa, or you can say they are um, four different because the South African giraffe the Angolan giraffe and the West African giraffe, they would never meet in the wild. Uh, they're completely separated from any other species. But the Rothschild reticulated and Messiah giraffe, their population overlaps. So ecologically, they share a similar environment. So you could say they're all one species. Um, personally, I like to say that there is um, four species of giraffe because there's four species that, when tested, um, their populations are genetically isolated, so they don't interbreed. Um, and these four, are, so that's why I go with. Them. <laughs> but it is, you know, I've seen other scientists say there's six. I say there's four. Um, and the um, conservation um, IUCN page for giraffe um, also agrees that there's four. So, sorry if that was really boring. <laughs> No, no, I am in. I'm in. I'm here for it. I find taxonomy to get really interesting once you get into like, where is where do you draw the line? Where what is the gray area between what's a species and what isn't? So I find that stuff really interesting personally. Yeah. And it, it seems like it's often an, an, an evolving concept, right? So as, as we learn more about a particular group of species that, that what, what we dictate is or is not a separate species can change. Yeah, exactly. And, and and it is it might seem like a bit boring now, but it's actually really important because depending on the amount of species depends on how the conservation funding is distributed across Africa. Um, and so if we say they're all like one species, then obviously one subspecies of giraffe might be more endangered than another. So it's not fair to be giving the one that's um, in a, a healthy population that's doing fine the same amount of money as a giraffe that's going to go extinct so that's kind of like why it's important and why we can talk about it it's not so much like an issue nowadays i think people kind of accept that as long as they're genetically isolated then that's how we distinguish it but taxonomy is always changing so you know i just think it was really interesting yeah, yeah i i agree so what about the rothschild giraffe in particular has your attention so I just really like the Rothschild because it's the the one I've I've worked with. Um, they're also the the bigger of the giraffe subspecies, um, and you know I like a big boy. So <laughs> <laughs> who doesn't? <laughs> so we are going to talk about the Rothschild, but again, a lot of this stuff can be overlapping with just kind of normal giraffe. I find interesting that the the word giraffe kind of derives from the ancient Greek for camel leopard. Because it's camel-like in shape and leopard-like in pattern. <laughs> I love that description. <laughs> <laughs> 
So this would imply <laughs> whoever named the giraffe had already is already aware of both a camel and a leopard. <laughs> so they saw they saw and named camels and leopards first. Yeah. <laughs> before giraffes. And then they were like Interesting. mix them. <laughs> they were like, you know what? We came up with a new name for camels and we came up with a new name for leopards. We ran out of words. I'm sorry, that's all the words that we have. <laughs> Just push them together, make a new one. <laughs> Because I mean, when you like say it out loud, um, it's I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but it's Camelopardalis. I couldn't say that one more mouthful, but it literally looks like camel leopard. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like they didn't even try. <laughs> Isn't this how a lot of German words are made, though, where they take two words that they already have and just smoosh them together? <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like uh, between the leopard and the giraffe. The giraffe is the more conspicuous of the two. It's the one I feel like you're more likely to uh, notice first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Surprising to me. Um, oh, also our species was su- submitted by Dalton Weeks. That's my friend. Hi, Dalton. <laughs> Thanks for the giraffe. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I was surprised that more people didn't request the giraffe, actually, mm-hmm. with with how much of a charismatic, like, one of those charismatic megafauna that they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that a lot of people that listen to us really like those obscure ones. So I was surprised that not a lot of people requested the giraffe, but I was also, like, so hyped when you said you wanted to talk about it. I was like, yes, please! <laughs> <laughs> I thought that, too, though. When I was thinking of an animal, I was like, I really need to get something quirky and, like, weird that no one really knows about. But then I was like, I just really like giraffes, though. <laughs> <laughs> Make it your own, man. <laughs> Make your own path <laughs> oh also like all this information so you know obviously i'm not a, like a giraffe expert i have a bachelor's of science in zoology i've studied giraffes through that and i've kind of worked with giraffes um but that doesn't by no mean make me a giraffe expert um i will trust you because you have worked with giraffes about a hundred percent more than me <laughs> <laughs> so uh what would you? What do you think you would give the giraffe for effectiveness? For effectiveness, I have given the giraffe two eight out of ten. Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah. Because um, one, their tongue, that is a pretty effective tongue. <laughs> that's like it, my favorite part of the giraffe. Oh, <laughs> is it? So good. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. I love because okay. So at our zoo, at the Jacksonville Zoo, they yeah. have a loop where it goes up high where you're at eye level with the giraffes and you can pay to feed the giraffes. So Uh they give you like a a branch with leaves on it and you hold it out and the giraffe comes up and eats it out of your hand. That's so lovely. Have you done it? I have done it many times. <laughs> I have done it many times, especially since, like, since my my son was born. Like, he, he the giraffe is actually his favorite animal at the zoo, um, and so he every time we go, he insists on feeding the giraffe, which is it, unfortunately it's totally up to the giraffe whether they want to be fed or not. Yeah. Like sometimes they'll it's such a huge area, right, that sometimes they'll come over and take some food and sometimes they're just not feeling it and they'll walk away. <laughs> so sometimes you end up heartbroken, but um <laughs> it's really cool to watch them eat though. And I'd hope that they um often come over and have a food because they do eat for 18 hours a day. So like hopefully <laughs> they haven't been fed too much so they'll come and come see you. 
Yeah, they they usually do, but sometimes like <laughs> it's really funny because sometimes there would be a long if they're having a busy day there would be like a long 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 line of like twenty people waiting to feed the giraffe, oh, and then the giraffe just kind of like turns and slowly walks away, <laughs> and all of the people in line are just like no, <laughs> that's so heartbreaking. It is. It's the worst. But do you know anything else about the giraffe's tongue? So I've seen it. And it is like a purple color, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And it is just insanely long. <laughs> that's all I know about it. <laughs> well, you're right. It's blue. And that's kind of its way of protecting itself from the sun. That dark coloration so they don't get a, a sunburnt tongue. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I yeah. hadn't thought of sunburn being a concern for your tongue. But their tongue is like always out, though. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you're if you're using it that often. That's true. So they got to like protect that. Go get some SPF SPF protection. <laughs> um, it's also quite a thick like muscle. Um, it has to be because they eat um, acacia trees and they've got these sharp thorns on them. So you know probably the the thickness adds to how dark it is. But um, it's got to protect itself from those those sharp thorns. That makes sense. That because I've seen how they will wrap their tongue around the branch and then pull it back so yeah. that they're kind of stripping the leaves off of yeah. the branch. So I would imagine they would need it to be protected so that that sort of friction wouldn't just tear their tongue to shreds. Yeah, can you imagine us doing that? Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> that would not be okay. It hurt me to think about. Exactly. Oh, also the um, tongue is 45 centimeters long, which is 17.7 inches. Whoa. Wow. That's so I'm trying to think like of like a foot and a half. What that's comparable to, but I can't really. It's just huge. I'm looking at my arm that's... and I bet my arm is about 17 inches long. From the elbow? Yeah. 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 That's probably say, not your whole arm. <laughs> No, no, no. I, now I'm realizing this is an audio medium and people can't see what I'm doing. But I'm holding my arm out in front of me with like the elbow, like bent out at the elbow. And yeah, that looks like about 17 inches long. And that also looks like insane length for anything's tongue to be. <laughs> I mean, it is, but it you know it helps them reach up. It helps them get those um, plants that are higher up. And I mean, this is a good time to talk about how animals evolve. So animals are kind of always in an evolutionary arms race. So for example, the prey needs to be fast to get away from the predator, so the predator gets faster until you reach kind of the cheetah, you know? Um, mm-hmm. For this example, like the giraffe, they needed to reach like the food sources. So the food sources would grow higher so the animals couldn't eat them. So the giraffe would go grow higher to be able to reach those trees. And then by doing that, it means that the animals that aren't evolving to get taller they are not getting the trees, so they've got that advantage of that extra energy because they can eat the acacia trees, but the other animals can't. Okay, I remember from an old biology class that there was the guy mm-hmm. that had the old debunked theory of um, evolution that like the, the fact that the giraffe was stretching their neck made their babies yeah. have longer necks. Like, that was how they used to think evolution worked, was that, like, the physical actions that you took during your life uh-huh. would affect, like, the physical traits of your offspring. So they thought that, like, the giraffes were reaching their necks up, and that that physical exertion of them reaching the neck. their neck out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was debunked a long time ago. That's not how no, evolution works. it's still works. very entertaining. My arms would be really long if that was true, because I'm always reaching for snacks. <laughs> Fantastic. This is relatable content. <laughs> 
Okay, so as well as their long necks that they use to, um, you know, reach for the trees because they stretch it so much, they um, also have like really big skulls. And I'm, probably, I'm sure you've probably seen them doing something called necking when they fight with each other. Oh my gosh, it's it makes me panic. <laughs> it freaks me out. <laughs> yeah, it's like crazy. They swing their necks, and you know, obviously, the bigger, heavier skull they have, that you know, more kind of power when they twist their necks around each other and force their ossicones into each other. It's like it's like a wrecking ball effect. It's crazy, right? Yeah, definitely. That's a, like a great example. So they've got this head, which I just think, I mean, it doesn't really have any disadvantages. It just helps them get the ladies. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> so big head is on a winner. Um, and then they've got their ossicones, which are ossified cartilage. They're those little things on the top of their head that look like horns, but they're not horns. You know, oh. when we talked about the um, the okapi, yeah. they have the, the same ones. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Because the okapi is the only extant relative of the giraffe left. So they share the same little ossicones. When I was a kid, one time, I'm going to go on so many tangents. I'm sorry. Like, I, I have a lot of, like, personal experience with giraffes just, like, on the other, like, on the opposite side of you, right? So, like, you're the, like, the zoo staff working with them. I'm on the, like, cl- the customer side of it, yeah. right? <laughs> so, when I was a little kid, I got to go, I was at this summer camp that yeah. was at, it's a it's a theme park that we have in Florida. It's called Bush Gardens. It's half theme park, but half of it is essentially a zoo. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah. So uh, they took us, and we must have been in third grade, like third or fourth grade. Um, um, so I was a little kid, and they took our little class out on the safari into the the middle area of their like park is essentially this giant open meant to kind of replicate the plains of Africa right it's Mm -hmm. it's it's very like it's open grasslands they have giraffes and zebras and all these cool things out there and so they took us out into the middle of them and had us feeding giraffes and antelopes and I think it was like giraffes and zebras and kudu and stuff that would like come up to the jeep and let us feed them but the giraffe was like having to bend down to pick to get the leaves from us so we had to like duck as the giraffe was swinging its head because the guy was like you got to be on your toes here man like if that giraffe head gets you you're looking at a concussion like this giraffe's (laughs) head is like 200 pounds please be on the lookout for giraffe heads can you imagine going to the hospital and it's just like what's wrong and i'm like the giraffe headbutted me (laughs) (laughs) I've been attacked by a giraffe. Oh, she's delusional. (laughs) It's all part of the concussion. (laughs) They just send you away. They're like, no, she's broken. (laughs) Yeah, so that's my experience with the bulkiness of a giraffe's head, was having to duck to not be thunked by one. I absolutely love that. Well, while you were trying to watch out for the head's you know, headbutting you. Did you manage to notice that some of them have pockets of fat? They're like little balls on their head, little nodules. Is this like directly on top of on the top head? of their head? Yeah, like all around, the, like the top of their head, above their eyes, kind of down their rostrum. I have seen the bump, but I assumed it was part of their skull. Well, these are little pockets of fat. Huh. Which, because, you know, imagine hitting your head against other giraffes' necks and heads. You need some protection. Like, your skull needs some protection against that. So by having these pockets of fat, it's kind of like a little bumper. 
Oh my gosh, it's like a cushion. It's like a, a an airbag. Right? Yeah, like that. And that's why I tell people that I'm actually just got lots of pockets of fat to protect me. <laughs> it's it's to protect me during my uh, fatal combat with my rivals. Yeah, exactly. It's an evolutionary benefit for me. Sorry, guys. It's my armor. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Now, so something that I also find really interesting about giraffes, like physically, is their hooves. Yeah. It is interesting that you mentioned their um, their feet, actually, because I'm going to pronounce this wrong again. They're artiodactyla, that's the order they're from. So um, the same as um, any even toed ungulate, so hooved animals like camel or bison or ibex. So they bear hmm. um, all their weight on an even amount of toes. So usually two, and the rest of their toes are like vestigial. So they kind of walk on their toe tips, but it looks like a giant foot, but it's just their toes. I remember when we talked about um, the camel, they mm-hmm. had padded hooves so that you couldn't hear them walking through the sand. But I'm thinking about the, the giraffe, and I don't think that they really need to worry about stealth. I don't think stealth is on their agenda. <laughs> but I mean, you also got to remember, like, uh, this helps the camel as well because of the the surface area to ratio of the their foot, their hoof, when you're walking on either snow or sand, it distributes your weight more evenly, so it makes it easier to walk on. That's true. It's like instead of a snowshoe, it's a sand shoe. Yeah. <laughs> now, here's something that I have heard that maybe you can help me if this is a myth, maybe we can debunk it. Okay. I have heard that the giraffe being so incredibly tall is not preyed upon by anything that like nothing will will like there no predators will attack it is this true well kind of yeah <laughs> obviously like the young and juveniles will get preyed upon and the elderly that are not as strong but no one wants to take a giraffe on a giraffe can kill a lion with one kick so it's a huge you know a lion has to be really hungry to then go and try to hunt a giraffe. I mean, a lion hunt already barely ever result results in a kill anyway, so it's very, very rare to see a, a giraffe hunt, you know? So they're like, listen, we're not going to get this one anyway. Let's just shoot our shot. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You know, that's why the mums are so protective of their young, because the young attract predators, because that's an obtainable feast for them. So the mums usually kind of detach themselves from the herd a little bit. So unlike other animals that you might have seen, they where they put the the young in the middle, kind of to protect the young from the predators. Because the giraffe is already big and doesn't have many predators in the first place, by having young with you, it attracts more predators. So they the mum goes off with her baby for a little bit, and she's like, I'm not going to attract attention to my you know my herd, my sisters. We're just going to be over here. But they just try not to let it get eaten, obviously, you know, like they're very protective of their babies. It probably helps that the baby, when they're born, they're like ready to go, right? They're like, all right, we're out. We're, we're walking. We're, we're live. We're yeah, doing this. I mean, they fall like two meters and then they're ready to, they're ready to go after like two hours. They like hit the ground running. They are ready to go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I mean, in zoos, um, when giraffes are born, they sometimes make something called a hotbed so they use all the feces and the poo from the giraffe they collect it for a little while and then they put the the mother giraffe in a, a closed pen with all the feces with all the old hay all that stuff because like wet and like moist hay and feces is really soft so compared to you know concrete kind of your typical 
zoo floor, it's a much nicer landing for them into this hotbed, <laughs> into the pile of poo oh. than the floor. And I guess you have the benefit of like already being immersed in the smells, I guess, of it, so that <laughs> so that like you're already acclimated to the smell of giraffe. Yeah. I so our zoo has a lot of giraffes, and they have babies every once in a while. Yeah, when they have babies, you know, it's it's just insane. First of all, how massive they are when they're born, mm-hmm. right? They're like born bigger than I am already. Huge. Mm-hmm. I, I think that should count towards their effectiveness that they are born so ready to go, right? A lot of other, not necessarily, I guess with ungulates, ungulates tend to be born a little bit better off than yeah. babies of other types of mammals that like, you know, they're born and they can't stand up and they can't open yeah. their eyes Maybe. and they're all pathetic. <laughs> but like ungulates are like, we have to go now. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, I'm late. I have to go. I'm sorry. I can't do it right now. <laughs> the, the the mom is like, we we have work. I got work in an hour. We got to move. <laughs> it's like, come on. I'm really hungry. You got to go eat some pizza cheese. If, if you're ready to move on to an ingenuity, what do you give the giraffes for their ingenuity? Okay. So I have given ingenuity a seven out of ten. Sometimes they have to bend down to drink in the watering hole, and I don't know if you've ever seen it, but they have to spread their legs really far and then slowly lower their head down, their gigantic fat head, and this just makes them extremely vulnerable. Oh, they don't have to do it very often because they eat plants that are high in, um, like they have lots of water in them, but um, sometimes go got a drink, and that makes them just ex- so extremely vulnerable, and if anything was going to prey upon them, it, was, it would be when they're drinking from the watering hole. But to redeem them from that, they um, do. They have a behaviour called gulping, um, and basically they can drink ten gallons, which is forty-five liters of water, in a couple of minutes. Wow! They're not playing. No, they're like, huh. we can't be here. We're going to get eaten. Drink. <laughs> this is uh, me on my birthday. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. We're on a budget and a schedule. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why you know they didn't get so such a good um, score on that. Also. What else was it? They um they sleep standing up, which is cool for them because like laying down would be really like if you're laying down you're vulnerable and getting up for a giraffe isn't very easy because they've got huge legs and a huge body and a huge neck. Yeah, it's probably hard to find your balance. So they lost some points for being so huge, but they sleep standing up to avoid that, and they only sleep for about thirty minutes a day. Whoa! Wow, <laughs> wow that's a lot <laughs> less yeah. than I thought. Well, okay, so you said earlier that they eat for 18 hours a day. So I'm seeing now that they have reallocated their time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, if if they're slow and they eat all day, you know, you wouldn't, you know, if you laid in your bed and ate all day, you wouldn't necessarily need to sleep as much because you're not exerting any energy, right? True, true. Interesting. That makes sense. I, I would even say that what you described earlier, the behavior of them separating themselves from the herd to have their babies, I think that counts as a clever strategy. Yeah, that's true. Because they're like, go, leave. You're putting us in danger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because also, like, you know, the when, when you're giving birth, that's a lot of, like, blood and body and fluids that you're putting down. out. Things that are going to, like, smell really strong, right? Mm-hmm. So any smell-based predator around there is going to, pick up on your location pretty quickly. So I think that them removing themselves from their herd counts towards their ingenuity. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would agree. When you were talking about the herds, you mentioned that she had to get away from her sisters. Are they typically herds of females? Yeah, well, you know, certain populations are different. But um, from my experience, when I was in South Africa, we saw a, a group of um, female giraffes and there was a big male and he came over and he was um, licking the female's urine. There was just one male and he was licking the urine to see if they were in, in heat and they were ready to mate. And the guide there, he told us that typically the males will they come of age and then it, just, it kind of stops inbreeding. They'll go off, they'll wander off and they'll find uh, another kind of group of females, mate with them. Um, you know, it's not like, you know, um, other species where they might kick the male out and get really hostile. But, you know, they, you know, they wonder. Sure, sure. Go for it. Go, go find your path, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's good. It's keeping those populations genetically diverse. So it's good for them. That's what all the men say. <laughs> <laughs> Baby, it's not you. It's genetic diversity. <laughs> <laughs> You're stopping the inbreeding. And then the female, she'll just stay for 425 days. Once the young is born, they'll feed off the mum's milk for 9 to 12 months. That's like a year, over a year of pregnancy. Like a, a year and yeah. a third. A year and a third. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine that? I was I was pregnant for 42 weeks and I felt like that was pushing it. <laughs> I felt like that was a little overboard. But imagining having to go for a year and a half with a like 200 pound baby. Yeah, it must be tough. Too much. Too much. I'm glad I'm not a giraffe. <laughs> Respect to them, but I, I don't think I could live that life. Well, luckily when the young is born, if there's another mother who's recently had a calf, um, the giraffe young will like share the milk from both. Like if one mom wants to mother the two of them for a bit, that's cool. They kind of take turns. They kind of share. Oh, that's nice of them. I feel I feel like I've heard of this like practice of the herd banding together to support each other's babies. I feel like this mm -hmm. is not super uncommon for ungulates, right? Yeah, super, you know, I mean, common in loads of mammals. And then it even goes to the extent of things like meerkats, where they'll even look after and feed. They're not even their young, they're their siblings, you know? You know, when you have that sort of altruistic tendency in mm -hmm. species, like it just makes them all better off, right? Like you're more likely for your species to continue yep. on if you're taking care of each other's babies instead of throwing them for your, <laughs> to distract your predators, <laughs> Quaka. <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially when, you know, these herds, they're often, you know, related, sisters, they've got their mums there, you know, they're big. so the kind of point of life is to spread your genes, and that's kind of what animals do. They need to just spread their genes. So if your sister's had a calf, even if yours doesn't survive, you still want their calf to survive because they're still carrying the same DNA as you. So as long as that calf survives and they spread their DNA and their genes, then your genes are still being spread. Yeah, see, they got it all figured out. That's <laughs> awesome. I love them. What would you give the giraffe for aesthetics? Aesthetics, I gave them a 9 out of 10. All Stellar. Right. <laughs> you got to. They have the most beautiful, thick eyelashes. Oh, oh yes. yes. Oh, my gosh. I hadn't even thought about their <laughs> eyelashes. They're so fabulous. We pay a lot of money to have eyelashes like that. They're like tactical eyelashes too, right? Because they keep like sand out of their eyes and stuff and bugs and all that gunk. Exactly. So it's like they look good and they're healthy. Who is she? It's form and function. <laughs> exactly. So I feel like that in itself deserves lots of points. And I feel like they have kind eyes. 
You know they what I mean? Do. They're so big, especially when you see a baby giraffe. The eye kind of ratio to head ratio. <laughs> It's quite funny because their eyes, they've got quite big bug eyes, which sometimes is a little bit creepy, but at the same time, it's like, oh, wow, you're a baby giraffe. It's really cute. <laughs> the thing I always picture when I think of giraffes is when they look head on to the camera and they're chewing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Oh, because their their mouth kind of makes a circular motion when they're chewing, right? Right. Yeah. It, that's pretty funny. I mean, that's why they're not a 10 because their teeth are a little bit like nasty. <laughs> and I, I feel like looking at them from dead on is their least flattering angle, oh, yeah. right? When you're looking at them from straight ahead, they're a lot less cute. Yeah, it's like, oh gosh, because you can't see how long the nose is either. So it's kind of just like eyes and then like a little hump on the head and then this long mouth. They have a beautiful side profile. Yeah. yeah. But then once they're looking at you, that's when the problems start. <laughs> <laughs> that's their first line of defense. <laughs> <laughs> But then there's a lot to be said for, like, their beautiful coloration, exactly. their beautiful yeah. markings. And, you know, their markings are all unique, like our fingerprints. So, you know, that's really cool. And like we said, all the different subspecies and species, they all have different colors and different patterns. And you might look at the, a giraffe and think, oh, it's just it's a giraffe. But then if you study their markings, you'd be like, wow, you can tell the individuals from each other. Yeah, it always impresses me when I go to our zoo um, and the keepers like the giraffe keepers can look out at the herd of giraffes and they can look out at the herd and they can point to each one and tell you the names of each one that it is you know to me it just looks like a bunch of giraffes like (laughs) it looks like you've copied and pasted the same animal like nine times but the keepers know which ones they are but like to me i i'm not trained in this stuff so i'm just looking i'm like looks like a giraffe to me (laughs) it's so hard i mean where i worked we had the biggest collection of giraffes in the uk so we had 19 whoa which was a lot of giraffes i mean it was a safari so they had so much space which was great but it wasn't on purpose. Basically, the big male, he was magnificent. His name was Casper. He um, he was just a machine. We put all the females on contraception. <laughs> didn't work. Casper was on the <laughs> So he just couldn't stop having babies. Oh, my gosh. We, we now have to separate the males to the females. What a player. <laughs> he is out there living his best life. <laughs> Literally. I mean, and from all 19, I could only distinguish three of them. <laughs> There was Casper because he was massive. He's the biggest drop I've ever seen, and he had the biggest, hugest head. There was Robin, who was Casper's son, and he was just the sweetest looking little giraffe. And there was Savannah, and she was so dark. She was like like mahogany. Her spots were mahogany. She was beautiful. Oh man, I bet that was cool. But the rest of them, yeah, they're just giraffes. I can definitely see why you gave them a nine. These are beautiful animals. They're really gorgeous. I mean, yeah, and they've got those huge ears kind of to the side of the head and tufty little oscones. And when they all run together, it's all kind of derpy, but still beautiful. <laughs> they're, they're like graceful in their own way, where it kind of, because of yeah. how long their legs are and how large they are, it kind of looks like they're running in slow motion. <laughs> so true <laughs> like it looks like they're slow but they're covering so much ground because of how tall they are literally and their legs just kind of swing right yeah they're like pendulous almost <laughs> <laughs> very stilt like yes like, like like they're running on stilts yes that's exactly right <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> 
is secretly it's just like a dick dick but on like stilts and he's got like <laughs> he stretched his neck on purpose he's just being really creepy <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh that are giraffes endangered like what it what is conservation looking like for yeah. giraffes so um our Rothschild that we're talking about today they are near threatened um and then the different subspecies like giraffe in general are classed as vulnerable some are doing better than others like the angolan giraffe is of least concern at the moment so you know less conservation efforts there but then things like the um cordofan giraffe um, are critically endangered as well as the nubian giraffe wow and, you know, you can check this out on giraffeconservation.org, um, which is, you know, the Giraffe Foundation. And you can see all the different conservation statuses and you can give to projects, kind of in situ and ex situ and see how you can help, basically. That's awesome. You, you had mentioned that you had seen them like on safari. Have you seen them like in the wild in Africa? Yeah, well, I mean, it was a game reserve. It's Kruger National Park. Oh my gosh, I love Kruger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the most wild you can get in Africa now because of things like the you know cities expanding, habitat loss because of agricultural things like timber farming, you know, just general farming where farmers don't want animals on their land. There's basically not really any wild left. So Kruger National Park was kind of the most wild we could get. That is on my bucket list. I've never been to I've never been to Africa at all, but mm-hmm. um, but I follow them like on social media and and all mm-hmm. that stuff and so I, I keep up with what they're up to and I would really love to go. Basically, you have to go. You will see everything if you want to go. We, you know, we drove around all day every day and the only thing we didn't get to see was African wild hunting dogs, but you know, we saw hyena, we saw elephants, we saw we ba- we just saw everything. We saw leopards. Wow. Did you see the leopards before you saw the giraffes? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it got to a point where we saw so many giraffes and elephants. So this is like kind of a controversial point. So everyone has a different standpoint on this. Don't come for me. Um, (laughs) Basically, in a whole, a lot of animals are really endangered. And in Africa, is suffering a lot from habitat loss, illegal hunting and poaching. Um, But the problem is in kind of some game reserves, the populations of some animals like elephants get really high because they they do so well because it's a protected area so they can finally breed like they should and live how they should and because of that they have lots of elephants and elephants can be really destructive in quotation marks to the land so they kind of shape the shape the area that they're in which in the wild in enough space would be absolutely fine but because it's a game reserve and there's limited space only there's only so much that it can hold you know yeah that's true so then you get, in quotations, too many elephants. You can't have too many elephants endangered. But for one area, there's too many and it's causing issues to the other species that are also endangered to live there. Maybe a species that likes a specific tree, the elephant really likes to rub their tusks on that tree and it's killing that species of tree. So in turn, the other species is suffering. And that's where you get animal culling, which does happen um, to elephants in Africa, because they're trying to maintain that piece of land and in doing so, they have to cull some of the animals, kind of things like that. It's, it's a difficult one. Yeah, it makes you really appreciate how delicate the balances of ecosystems are in the wild. How, you know, mm-hmm. the, an overabundance of one animal can really throw things off for the rest of the species that live there. Exactly, you know, and it got to a point where we were on safari and we were like, oh, another elephant. And we kept on driving because <laughs> we had seen so many elephants. We had seen, I mean... Sometimes we weren't driving. We went on. Um, we went on foot sometimes with a guard, and we found 
we just were standing right next to two beautiful giraffes. They were huge, and it was just um, crazy to think that th there was a, a possibility of having too many of these animals that are, are suffering, and there's not enough of them. But in in a whole, we can't fix that without creating more space for them. But as our population is increasing, we're getting you know we're using more space, so we're kind of going in the opposite direction. Yeah, because you you think of in these places where there's like. Um, they're getting to the point of an overabundance whereas like you know people over here would pay top dollar to see a giraffe <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I know that for elephants in particular because of the intelligence of elephants people are trying to move away from keeping elephants in zoo settings and are trying to move towards putting them into like large like sanctuaries um, and then like yeah. some zoos are just trying to update their habitats for the elephants so that they're more appropriate. Some zoos are like, we don't have the budget to make an appropriate habitat for this elephant. So we're just going to put them out mm -hmm. into a sanctuary. Once you start to really get into the standards that we're keeping large animals like elephants and giraffes in, it's like, it, it's hard to say what is the right thing to do for everybody in that situation. You know, you can't really, everyone's going to have their own opinion and kind of, different studies show different things for example i know somebody who's very anti-zoo i work with her i love her but she's very anti-zoo um and that's because she doesn't think they have enough space which we never can give an animal enough space to replicate what they'd have in the wild but but then from my background i've studied and i found you know quality sometimes in zoos a lot of studies um support this is better than quantity so the more enriching enclosures the ones that have you know stimulate more natural behaviors actually have more positive effects on animals that have just more space yeah it's it, it there's no like one answer for everybody right but it but also mm. it's not always about the space that you're giving to the animal it's like what are you doing for the animal species right so you get into these like critically endangered mm -hmm. species that are not going to make it without captive breeding yeah, and then that brings you on to an even bigger argument because we're keeping giraffes, for example, and it's really very hard to relocate a giraffe. So, to be honest, from England, we would never re-release a giraffe, right, into the wild. We would never have a rehab, uh, you know, program that would then actually release. I mean, we wouldn't need one because Africa's got that going on. They can provide that much better than we can. But So we're then breeding these animals in captivity, keeping them um, genetically diverse. But, like, sometimes you've got to wonder why. Because at the moment, it doesn't look like... The, the, the root of the issue is the habitat loss, right? And the illegal hunting. But that's not stopping. That's increasing. So we're eventually... It could be to an area where we have these animals in captivity and there's no wild left anymore. So then what? We're keeping them alive for us? question mark kind of thing you know yeah. so it, it's really hard i mean i mean i'm pro zoo you know i'm not saying like zoos are bad but i'm just saying we've got to think about all these different kind of aspects you know it's definitely a great area i support zoos because without zoos a lot of animals would be extinct um you know there was animals that we bred at the safari park that um if the safari park didn't breed them they actually went extinct in the wild and then they were re-released and now they have a surviving population um things like that you know um, it's good to have these animals to study them and understand and so we don't repeat our accidents. Visitors that come and see the animals are proven when they see them and have like an interaction with them. They care more about conservation and wildlife and they go home and they make changes in their life. So there's loads of positives to zoos, but 
kind of always question everything. Only go to a zoo if you really support their core values and you know where your money's going and you know that they support conservation um, efforts. You know, I think in England it's much easier because I not in detail, but I've kind of studied uh, the differences in zoos, mainly aquariums between England and America. And here we have like these crazy high standards, so you know you're going to be supporting something that you know legally they have to support conservation education efforts. But I know in different states of America it gets really blurry, and you know you have to be careful kind of who you're supporting and whatnot. But just do your research, um, be open to the fact that zoos are not bad and care about the environment. Yeah, especially in in America where you get into this weird. There's, of course, the worldwide, the AZA accreditation. Like, you want to look for a, a zoo that yes, is accredited yeah. by the AZA. And, and also, you get into, like, there's a lot of places will say, oh, well, we're approved. We we meet the USDA's, uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's standards for wildlife care. But that's completely different mm-hmm. from the AZA. And the standards are, like, abysmally low. Mm-hmm. It's basically, like, are you feeding the animal and keeping it alive? Like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you just have to really do your research and mm-hmm. especially with sanctuaries because I don't I think to become a sanctuary you don't have to meet any of those um standards like here you don't have to um abide by something we have something called Biaza and you don't have to um go by kind of like their you're not under their branch, you know, you're a private collection, you're a sanctuary. So anything that happens in that isn't covered by the same things that zoos are covered by. It's completely different. The only thing that covers that is the Animal Rights Act of 2006, which is our basic animal rights, like animals need food, animals need shelter. The same that would apply to your dogs and cats. Mm -hmm. But that's problematic if you're keeping... Um, you know, big animals, right? Yeah, because the standards are very different for caring for a dog and caring for a giraffe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it gets a little bit sticky, but I mean, we obviously love zoos. We talk about zoos all the time. We uh, have zoo in our oh, name. Yeah. We're <laughs> we are a pro-zoo family. Here. We're big but fans. We respect everyone, even if you're not pro-zoo. No one wishes that there was more space in the wild for animals than people that work at zoos like we didn't we don't want to be having to keep these animals alive just so their species exists right but we're in this situation so we just want to love them and give them the best life possible make sure they have enrichment make sure they they have the most natural life as possible because they're our ambassador animals and they deserve that they're representing their wild cousins to help gain like money for conservation and raise awareness so they're doing a huge, amazing job, and they don't even know it. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you being the voice for um, the the voice for zookeepers. I really appreciate you coming on here and, first of all, talking to us about giraffes, but also talking to us a little bit about what it's like to work at a zoo, why zoos are important, stuff like that. All all things that I'm really excited to have your insight on. So I really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for having me because I'm like a huge fan, and <laughs> when you asked me to come on, I was so excited, and I was like practicing and everything and this is just a huge deal and not just to be on your podcast but just to talk to you guys and I'm, I'd always love to talk to you guys about animal things because I can always talk about animals so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it, it's been a lot of fun do you have anything that you are like do you have anything that you're working on you are you on social media that you want people to follow you anything like that where can people find you oh well thank you well um I just use kind of Instagram and Twitter my Instagram is like the most fun because I just post cool animal pics from like work. Um, 
and if you want to come and chat to me about animals on there like always do that I will love that I'll reply as soon as I can um, my name is just Katie Stoneman um, K-A-T-T-I-E-S-T-O-N-E-M-A-N uh, there's a picture of me and the tiger in the profile picture so you know who I am <laughs> um, and that's it really that's all I want just loads of animal people <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's probably my favorite thing about you know having done this podcast and now having like the group and our Twitter and everything like that. Like it's basically just a big community of people who are mm. either experienced with or just interested in or passionate about animals. So it's a great blend of like people like you who have a lot of work experience and are like experienced professionals. And then there's other people who like maybe have never even been to a zoo, but they just like animals yeah. and want to learn more about them. And so it, it's a wide variety of expertise levels and I think that that's a it's really fun for me to see like in the Facebook group when people are bridging that gap between mm -hmm. just like your your average everyday person will maybe like post a question about an animal and then to see in the group like someone who is a professional that studies that animal who comes in with a great answer mm -hmm. and so I, I think it's been really exciting to see how social media can kind of connect the just the average everyday person with like a scientist or a zookeeper or somebody so it, it makes it seem so much more it, it humanizes it right so people are able to yeah. actually talk to the researchers it's not just this nebulous like oh there's scientists somewhere often you know <laughs> in these secret labs with their lab coats that are doing like research we don't know about it's like you can talk to the people like yeah. you can just yeah and it's super friendly when you do right you don't have to read a huge journal and get bored to death because <laughs> someone already has and you can ask them on Facebook page yeah so I I've really enjoyed that so um I was really thrilled that you said yes <laughs> to talk to us so this has been a lot of fun and I'm hoping that maybe sometime you can come on again again and talk to us about another animal definitely i always have a lot to say so. <laughs> <laughs> perfect you know i'm i'm game whenever anybody can match my level of uh talkativeness <laughs> <laughs> i'll hold you to that all right katie well we appreciate you so much thank you so much for talking to us thank you all right we'll see you later thanks katie bye bye, bye everyone bye. from just the <laughs>